0: Good morning, I'm Pastor Justin Carl and welcome to Sojourn Midtown. We are continuing today in our series on the fruits of the Spirit and now there's nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But instead of going to Galatians 5, we're actually looking at the fruits of the Spirit in the life of Jesus, both seeing a positive example of the fruit by Jesus and like today, seeing a negative example by a follower of Jesus, namely Thomas. And so far we've had Jamal teach on love, we've had uh, Pastor Jones teach on joy, and we had Pastor Chong teach on peace. And all those, even though they can be tough to practice sometimes, sound like Sunday morning fruits. They sound like things we're excited about, we're singing in our songs. That's the kind of stuff we wanna hear about when we get to church. But today we're taking a turn. We're taking a turn to a Monday morning fruit. Because patience, you don't just walk around being patience. You gotta be provoked to even let patience out. You gotta be provoked to get a chance to express patience. And if you're like me, sometimes when you're provoked, it's not always just patience that pops out. And so I was wondering about what makes us most impatient. So I threw it out on Facebook and I came away with like a top four, the top four things that people get impatient about. First is traffic. We've all been there. No one likes to see red lights as far as we can imagine. That is no fun. Number two was impatience with our own sins or the sins of those close to us. And it was interesting, the closer it got, the more the complaints were there. Spouses, neighbors, close friends, and even children. And with children, it's interesting because we pray and we pray and we want these children and they're such a gift from the Lord. It truly is a gift from God. But then we learn as they kind of progress into maybe toddlerhood that they're also God's chosen instrument of patience in our life. They start just putting the screws to us, literally. My child is currently in a rebellious stage where shoes in public are a big no-no. So we have a hippie child running around. The other two is when people aren't paying attention, they're on their phones or Kroger, they're just not on it or whatever it is. And number four was a little more serious. Patience when we're waiting on God with a hope for something. We've had a vision from the Lord, we, we, we feel something from God, and we're just waiting. What, when will it be, Lord? What day will it be? My patience is growing thin. I know you're good, but things feel crazy. And so what is patience? I want to look at the, what the Bible gives us as patience because it's a word that's on decline in our culture. It's actually used three times as less in literature than it was 200 years ago. So we're beginning to lose a sense of what the word means. And in Greek, it's just macro thumos. And macro is what you think it would be. It means big, long, great. And it's stuck together with thumos, which means emotional outburst. It means anger, it means your words, it's a lashing out word. So when we think of patience, the New Testament uses it in two senses. Sense one is patience as long-suffering, choosing to hold back our anger, even if something is done wrong to us, even if it's a sin against us or someone we love, we choose to withhold our anger until the right time and the right place. Because anger is not always a sin. There are things we should be angry about. Injustice is something we should be angry about. And there's a right time and a right place to let, us, let people know that this is wrong. Second is patience and self control. This is probably the more common one we experience. And self, patience and self control is putting up with the weaknesses of others, the annoying habits of others, the faults of others, even other believers. And it's choosing, the patience here is overlooking and choosing to overlook when people say dumb things, when people cut in line, when people snub you for some reason, or, you know, ignore about half the things on social media currently, you know? And so that's the two types of patience. And a couple weeks ago, Dr. Jones told us that sometimes the preacher preaches the Bible uh, and preaches it to the people of God, and that's fine. Other times, uh, the preacher is preaching to himself as much as everyone else, And I want to take that one step further, because I've gotten to study it for a couple of weeks. I was at camp with Henry and doing the S2 camp, and so I was kind of catching up, getting ready for this sermon, reading ahead. And God just started to fry my heart like an egg, as he started to turn up the heat of what patience really is, and how little I really have. And it got so bad, I I literally started to feel like I was underwater, as the conviction started to rise, and I had to call a Carl family council, and I like, sat my wife down, sat my toddler down like she was going to sit, and then I you know, sat my dog down, and I had to confess to them and share, I'm not the most patient husband or father or dog owner. <laughs> my dog barks a lot, and so you know, I lose my patience. And so if you feel this morning like the Word of God is frying you, I'm right there with you, okay? So as we look at this, I wanna take a look at this chart. And we see this is kind of the values of our culture. This is where we're going. Our world is increasingly uh, defined by speed, convenience, and entertainment. You can just think the internet, iPhone, Amazon. And these are the consequential attitudes. These are the unintended consequences. Slow is bad. Hard is bad. Boring is bad. And what it's trained us to do and think is that it's okay to be impatient with anything that's slow, hard, long-term, involves suffering, involves commitment, and isn't fun. We've trained ourselves to say, hey, because we're a part of that culture, that we can just be disgruntled if things aren't going great and moving quickly. And so today, you can go ahead and turn to John 20. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your New Testament. It's towards the back of the Gospel of John. And we're going to examine Thomas's impatience, And we'll see that his impatience is our impatience. And then I want to see Jesus as a patient God, as the God of all patience. So turn to John 20. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, and see Jesus turning to him here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Lord, Father, God, I want to pray for us as we dive into your word today. We know all power rests in your word and your spirit working through us. No matter how great the church is, no matter how great all of our giftings are as we serve one another, the tools of our growth, the tools of our change, the tools of our salvation are your word and spirit at work. And I pray for that earnestly in the name of Jesus Christ now. I pray that we'd look at maybe the high holy moment of the Gospel of John and maybe even the Bible of Thomas Thomas proclaiming that you are Lord and you are God, and we would be forever changed by your magnificent, perfect word. Amen. Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So when we look at John 20... It's the second to last chapter of the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John starts out with this, that God, the eternal God in Jesus, comes of a Virgin Mary and born as a man. So we have the God-man moving around, rolling around Galilee and Judea and Israel. And as he gets baptized and begins to teach, he gets these followers and he gets 12 of them and they're called the disciples and they witness everything he does. They see him teach, they see him challenge, they see him at the synagogue, they see him flipping tables, turning water to wine, healing the sick, helping the lame, loving. It was so incredible, the miracles, that some scholars even say there was almost virtually no one sick at the end of three years. He couldn't find any more people to show that I am the God who brings healing and change. And yet, right before John 20, Jesus is dead. He's crucified at the demand of the Jewish leaders. He's killed by Roman authorities. And he's been in the grave for three days. And he died. He didn't fight back. He didn't protest his arrest. He didn't protest the the sham trial that was at midnight. He died for us. It was the eternal plan of God. The whole reason him becoming man was to suffer and die on our behalf an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice for all of our sins, all the things, the judgment we were due, the wrath we were due poured out on God on the cross. But it wasn't enough to die. Jesus had to rise, to rise to prove that payment was accepted, that he is a risen one, that it worked, that our sins are atoned for, to rise, to literally prove that he conquers death and we can trust him that one day we will be raised up in eternal life. He had to rise to literally conquer Satan, to let his church that would come after him know that Satan doesn't have the last word in our lives, no matter how dark it feels. And so we have this, and they don't know Jesus has risen yet, but they're starting to get an inkling in John 20. Mary goes to the tomb to bring flowers and to to, to prepare spices to make it not smell so bad. And when she gets there, the stone is rolled away, but the clothes are all folded up. And so she sprints back to where the disciples were and she says, hey, the Lord is risen. They can't believe it. So Peter and John just take off. They're running and running and running to the tomb and they get there and they see the folded clothes and they know it's not robbers. Robbers don't fold dead burial cloths afterwards. And so they leave and then Jesus appears to Mary. And then Jesus appears in the room. We'll jump in there at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, means the twin. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So we see in this first bigger appearance, he appears to Mary, then he appears to the disciples. Thomas is missing, Judas is missing, he's committed suicide at this point, Thomas is missing, and we don't know why. There's no explanation given. I don't know. Maybe he's doing a Starbucks run for the team. Maybe he's that gopher. He's just got a go-getter. But for whatever reason, he's not there and he's not taking it that well. He's not about to take it real well. And it's called Doubting Thomas, this section. And we see his doubts exposed, but they're exposed and we start to see them by his impatience. His impatience with the timing, his impatience with the people, his impatience with the ways. And here's the three ways. Thomas was upset with the timing and circumstances. Why wasn't Jesus on my schedule? Why wasn't, where was Jesus when I'm ready to see him? Why can't he be here now? And this is familiar to us because timing is infuriating, right? Waiting for your browser to load, waiting for that Uber that said it'd be two minutes and it's 12, waiting for the bus that's not on schedule, waiting in an airport, eating lots of airport food and then feeling shame and then like hiding under your seat. And, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, tropical storm Veronica will just not move, you know? Um, When our car breaks down, it's this timing infuriates us. And instead of being reflective and Thomas saying something like, where was I? Or even expressing regret, like, man, I wish I was there. Or even a prayerful hope. Jesus has never once not been faithful to me. He said he'd rise from the dead. I'm sure he'll be back soon. None of that happens as he starts to build towards his angry proclamation. Instead, we see the impatience here of Thomas is that long-suffering patience is absent. It's his fault, and this is not a long period of time but he's infuriated. He doesn't have patience. Number two, Jesus is impatient with his own people. Remember, these were his friends for three years. He wouldn't believe Mary at the tomb, wouldn't believe Mary again as she saw him. He chose not to run and go check out the tomb, and he's mad about all these things, and he won't believe the testimony of now 10-plus people who were his closest friends and basically family have been traveling around Israel, and you would think he would rejoice This is the best news in the world. Your Messiah was dead and now he's alive. His friends are literally ecstatic. And he deadpans this, making it much worse. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's pretty gruesome. And you can see a frustrated man here. That's a strange thing to say to God. It's a strange thing to say anytime that you want to stick your hand in a dead, now risen body. But this pushes to the roots of our impatience. Thomas's doubts about God are pumping out of him as his idol, his functional God of control is being messed with. Because he doesn't just want to see Jesus, he wants it his way at his time and by his own experience. And so we see impatience is usually just a symptom of more going on with us, right? We don't wake up and say, oh, I want to be impatient with my spouse or roommate or friend. Well, I want to be really impatient at work. I want to be a complainer at work. We don't do that. And it's symptomatic maybe of a lot of things, but I think the most common one I've been hearing is control. When our timing or our people or our agenda is upset and suddenly we feel out of control, our impatience just flares up and we can't even help ourselves. It makes us feel crazy. And what it reveals is that control can be a functional God or idol, something we live for, something we worship, something we obsess over, something that makes us feel loved and safe and important. And if it just is our way, if it's just on our time frame, then everything will be okay. And we can call ourselves Christians and maybe even act like Christians a lot of the time with our functional God, our real God being control. And it's only really revealed when God knocks it over. Your car has a blowout. That person is late. And then suddenly the real us starts just pumping out. Our impatience is everywhere. And what it's symptomatic of is our unbelief. It's symptomatic just like of Thomas. His doubts provide this cocoon for control to be his God. And it pumps out as, um, as impatience. Thomas is impatiently demanding an unreasonable amount of evidence about Jesus because of his control issues. Remember, he'd appeared to these people already. Jesus had prophesied about his own death 10 plus times in the Gospel of John. The whole Old Testament, which Thomas probably knew or knew very well, he'd seen it fulfilled before his eyes. 300 plus prophecies. And now he's like, I'm not ready to believe. Not on their testimony, not on the Bible's testimony, not on Jesus's testimony about his own resurrection before his death. And we're hitting Thomas pretty hard. We're going to lay off Thomas, but at least Thomas expressed his impatience because Thomas's impatience is no different than ours. See, when it comes to impatience, we do one of three things. We either express it, we let it out like Thomas, and it's this angry outburst. Oh, why won't you just do this? But then the second move that's maybe more common is we stuff it down. We know it's setting in when we have bitterness over situations or people, when resentment grows against that roommate or spouse or boss or whoever it is. We're impatient. We're just letting it poison us. And then the third way, you know, if, we, if we're not going to let it out, if we, we're not stuffing it down, a lot of us, and, and, and we just leak it out. It just starts seeping out of us. We think it's under control, but we notice we're starting to drop little cutting remarks all the time. We're sarcastic around certain people only. Our voice changes. We're dismissive of others. And we start to see our impatience is poisoning us and it's just seeping out of us all the time. And so that's why the impatience is so tricky. Because it's not just the guy in the Kroger line at the U scan line, like, come on, come on. Don't you know it's U scan? You scan it. It's not just that guy, it's all of us. It just doesn't mean, how do how do we express it? How, how is it functioning in our life? And I would say it's not even an individual problem. It's not even just a cultural problem, which we're a part of. It's a local church problem. Because all of our hearts make up this church. All of our persons make up this church. And so we have an impatient church. There's a pastor author named Zach Eswine, and he puts it this way. The chief sin of the American church is impatience. And it's everywhere if we're willing to look. It's everywhere. We want shorter services that fix our whole life in 40 minutes. We want, to fix discipleship. we want a discipleship curriculum to fix everything about us. We want the next Christian book to solve all those issues and we don't have to go back around to them again. Or maybe it's going to community group and expecting in two months of investing to have two years worth of friendship out of everyone. And so we say, we're done with this. I don't have the patience to really cultivate anything, and I expected it to be better. It's symptomatic of all of us. Impatient culture, impatient hearts, and impatient church. And here's where, the, here's where the doubts, the control, and all of our impatience really comes together. Because our impatience in life is really an impatience with God. Our impatience with life is an impatience with God. Our struggle with patience is not circumstantial, it's theological. Our struggle isn't about what's going on, or going on or going wrong in our life. It's a struggle of do we believe what we know about God? Do we believe he actually is who he says he is? Because think about it, who controls our times? Look at Daniel 2, 21, it tells us he changes times, and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God's always on time. God is in control of time. All of our anger at timing is an anger at God. Look at this. Who controls the people around us? Or even down to allowing what they say. First Chronicles 29. For you, God, rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand. At your discretion, people are made great and given strength. There is no human alive today acting negatively upon you or positively who is outside of the sovereign control of God. And so suddenly our impatience at people or things or the way of my life is playing out is an impatient at an all-powerful God. The world is God and everything's in it. And I want to nuance this. Because sin does wreak havoc, and it wreaks havoc in our world and in our life. Sin is horrible. It messes with our biology. It messes with our relationships. It messes with our jobs. It messes with our emotions. It messes with everything about us. But I confidently, the scriptures tell us that the havoc in a believer's life is never outside of God's allowance for it. God is in control, not sin. God is in control, not Satan. We can look at the cross if we want evidence. When we rage against the world, we rage against God. When we see a person who is impatient, no matter their religion, they're an atheist. When we see a person who's impatient, no matter their religion, they're an atheist. Thomas is trying to boss God around like he's in charge. And this leads us to a serious and important place. A serious and important place of how can I move past my doubts? How can I get over my control issues? And how can I let go of my impatience? And the answer's in the text. We can only do these things by trusting a God who was broken for us and is currently risen for us. We're only gonna move past any of these things by trusting a God who was broken on the cross for us and now lives, risen for us. We are an impatient people. We can all just admit that. Hi, I'm Justin and I'm impatient. But Jesus is our patient God. Look at verses 26 and 28 for me. A week later, his disciples are were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And so we see our God, this patient Jesus, is patient in two ways. First, God is patient with us in our justification. And that's a fancy word for our salvation before God. Being justified means we came to God guilty. We're all guilty of sin. We're guilty of impatience. But at the cross, Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. So we're not just not guilty before God. We become his children We have Jesus's righteous record. That means to be justified, declared not guilty, and declared righteous before God. And God is patient with us in this. And this is why he can handle our doubts, because God has been the patient God, the slow to anger. That's the Hebrew kind of phrase you see over and over in the Old Testament. He's been slow to anger for all of eternity. There isn't an angry Old Testament God and then a kind, gentle, cool Jesus God that we want to hang out with. They're not two different gods. There's one God. And let me walk you through the hall of history. This is the hall of human history of where God was patient. In the deserts of Exodus, God was patient with Israel in the most of their failings and sins over and over. And God is patient, always moving them towards the promised land. In Psalms, God is patient with dealing with our sins, with our complaints and our rage. He encourages it. He says, don't grumble to others. You bring that to me. If you got a problem with the boss, let's hear it. That's basically the title of the Psalms. Jonah, God is patient both with the foreigners in Nineveh and patient with this prophet, Jonah. If you had sent a prophet and he disobeyed, would you save him when he jumped in the ocean? Well, he did. He sent a whale. He got him, spit him back up. And what's God do? He gives them the exact same commission. He doesn't change the mission in Iota. I would have sent someone else. Jonah, you're cut. You're off the team. I'm looking forward to next year's draft. We're going to get a better prophet. That is not God's way. He isn't giving up on Jonah. He didn't even give up on wicked Nineveh. Look at Micah. God is described as different from all the other gods of the ancient world. He's saying, I'm patient. I'm not like a child. I don't change my mind every 10 seconds. I'm not appeased with minor sacrifices. He says, I'm God. I don't change. I'm always patient. That's the book of Micah. Hosea, God is patient with Israel like a husband to an unfaithful wife. And then later in chapter 11, he says he's patient with us like a a parent with a child. And it gets so personal there that God even cares about that. He's all the way up in the intensity of those two relationships and saying, I'm patient like the best husband and father you've ever met. And then finally, we see in Jeremiah, God is patient and sends prophet after prophet for 40 straight years who come and say, Israel, will you please come back? I'm waiting. I don't want to send you into exile. I would rather you come home. And here's a great summary for God's patience in Nehemiah 9. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. You gave them into the hands of neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This means God was patient before we believed, and he was patient as he drew us to himself. He was patient in our foolishness. And I want you to see he's patient before you believe, but he's also patient for if you're in Christ, if you already believe. This is a patient God. And that's a big word called sanctification. It's important we unpack big words because they're in the Bible. And I want us to understand when we're in the Bible and not just gloss over, you know, I'm, I'm a glosser. You know, I, wanna, I gotta dig in. And sanctification means the process of a justified believer becoming slowly more and more holy in his or her actual life. And this is reflected in the scene with Thomas. Because as soon as Jesus shows up, Thomas fades in the face of Jesus. The rebellion is over. The raging is gone. The doubting is gone. The inquisition he was mounting against the evidence of Jesus, his impatience starts to melt. And the Jesus who shows up says, peace to you. He settles the whole room in an instant. And then he draws close to Thomas and says, hey, I'm here now. I'm this close, and I'm not mad. I want you to see my wounds. I want you to see who I am. Go ahead and touch him. That's how gentle Jesus is. This is the lion who chooses to be a lamb in front of us. He says, go ahead and see the blood. If that's what you need, come that close. I'm here all night. And this is a moment I don't want us to miss because it's the high point of the book of John, maybe the Bible. Don't miss the moment because Thomas is completely laid bare. All of his warts, all of his sins, all of his shouting, all of his impatience, God knows it. Jesus is not ignorant of last week. But this is the kind of Jesus he sees, and this is the Jesus I want you to see. It's the I'll never leave you type of God. It's there's nothing you can do to make me love you anymore or love you any less type of God. It's the Thomas, I know you've been a fool, but I love you anyway, sort of savior. And it reminds me of a scene, and you might think this is cheesy, but in 2004, there was a movie that kind of swept the nation. And it was called The Notebook when Ryan Gosling was a young lad. And there's this scene where they're in front of the house and it's near the end of the movie and they're like, they're like fighting, fighting, fighting and they pop off the porch and they're in the grass and they're by the blue car and Ryan turns to Allie, or Noah turns to Allie. <laughs> oh, I just love Ryan. Um, and he drops this line and it's awesome. He says, so it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be really, really hard. We're going to have to work at this every day. But I want to do that because I love you. I want you. I want all of you forever, you and me, every day. And it's so powerful because they just spent five minutes yelling about each other's flaws. And we have something a lot better than Ryan Gosling. Our Jesus is not flawed, but he loves us. He loves us like that. A fighting, even when we're resisting, even when we're demanding a verdict and evidence kind of God. He says, come on and bring your doubts. And he doesn't say it as a mean challenge, but as a gentle response to say, if you need to touch the wounds, I want you to go there. If you're struggling with doubt today, if you're struggling with impatience, if you're struggling with control, I'm struggling with all of them. Go ahead and put your hand in his side. Say, Lord, tell me all about you. I want to trust a wounded savior. The same offer that's to Thomas is the offer to you today. It hasn't changed. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday as he is today, as he is forever, is what Hebrews tells us. Patience, God's patience in our sanctification means God is not changing his mind on you. It's settled at the cross. Sure, our sin grieves God. We should repent of all of our sin all the time and avoid it at all costs. But that's what growth is. God is redeeming us, and we're already redeemed. That's the truth of Christianity. That's the truth of sanctification. That's why we're forgiven and we're working on it. We don't work ourselves into forgiveness. We live in our forgiveness. And that's the Christian life. So he's patient in our justification, he's patient in our sanctification, and we see in verse 28, we have the antidote of our impatience, and it's believing our patient God on his terms. Verse 28 says this, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, and that phrase Lord is loaded. It's a loaded Old Testament phrase to call God Lord. It says you are king and sovereign over every aspect of the universe. You exist outside of the universe and govern it from within. You are the God of all. And then the second part, he doesn't just say you're God. He says you're my God. He's the God over all. He's the creator, but he's my God. He's savior. He's ours or maybe even better, were were his. Learning to trust Jesus as Lord and God, as a wounded savior who's risen and as king over all, is how you cultivate patience. Timing's off. God, you're sovereign. People annoy me. Well, good thing you died for them too. There's a way that the gospel heals and speaks to our problems, we've done a lot of theological today, a lot of scriptural. And so I want to hit a couple practicalities, a couple here, the four broad categories. We kind of mentioned them earlier, but I want to help us apply the gospel to our life and think about these things in the gospel. Look at your uh, bulletin. It says, Impatience with the Future. In our Way to out of impatience with the future when we are waiting for that promotion or waiting for that child or waiting for that marriage or husband or wife or whatever it is, or waiting for the to be healed or waiting to get out of the treatment or waiting to get out of school. Our answer is contentment with God because God is with us right now. And the best thing about your life right now is God is with you. And in two years, no matter if you get that thing or not, The best thing about your life then will be God with you. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt right now. We should long and hurt for things that are good and holy. That's good. But it's a longing and hurting with God, not against him. The best thing about our life is God's presence with his people right now. So in the face of future anxiety, we can have today's contentment. Impatience with circumstances. The invitation the gospel is to lean into God's sovereignty. If God's over us, whatever it is going on, no matter if it's minor, a tire, bigger, a fire, huger, a death, it doesn't matter. Those things matter, but God, the sun's still gonna rise tomorrow. And if God's permitted it in your life, there's a purpose for it, whether you understand it or not. And the mystery isn't even figuring that out. It's trusting that God knows. He sees you. He hears you. And his invitation of a wounded savior stands to put your hand in his side when it doesn't make much sense. Our patience with others. And this is a hard one because our impatience with others, often these are things we've prayed about. Often these are things we've begged God for. I want that spouse. I want that job. I want that child. And those are the things we're most frustrated for. That was one of the most revealing things I've learned is man, it's the things that I love and I've asked God for the things that are driving me crazy. And our answer from God is the love of God. We love because he first loved us. If our love for those things is dependent on them loving us or their perfect record or their perfect love towards us, we are hopeless. But if the power to love that spouse who ain't changing and that toddler who's terrorizing and that job that's taken over your life like poison ivy, that power is only in God's love. Because God loved us first, we can choose love in that moment. We can stop in that impatience, that provocation, and wait a couple seconds to respond. It might get a little awkward, but I would just wait and say, I'm going to choose patience because I know God loves me more than I can imagine. I know God loves them more than I can imagine. So I'm going to want their good and be patient today. It's a spiritual act. It's not going to happen through hard work, it happens through effort with God. And then, last, maybe the most toughest. One of all is impatience with ourself. I'm plagued by this all the time. I wish I was a better dad. I wish I was a better husband. I wish I was a better neighbor. I feel guilty. My neighbor just moved and I feel guilty. I didn't, I didn't share the gospel more with them. I have new neighbors, so you know, starting again. It's like, I feel like the clock is ticking to love them well and have them in my home and share the gospel. And I wish I was a better neighbor and a better friend. I wish I was holier. And we start to see the solve, how to solve our impatience with ourselves is the grace of God. There's no other solution. And the grace of the God is so radical that God doesn't love some future version of yourself. He loves you right now. He loves you as you are. He didn't save some future version of Justin. He didn't save some future version of of. Of ourselves, he's, he's, He is saving, and the grace of God is acting on the person who's fighting with their spouse on the way to church, who lost their temper last night, who made a, a poor decision last night, who's blown it for months on end. The grace of God is for you right now, not when you get it all together, not when you clean yourself up. Because most of us, if you're a Christian today, we say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I get it, he paid it all but we functionally live the gospel of guilt. He did so much. Why can't I get my stuff together? Oh man, Jesus is so patient. I'm so impatient. I better try harder tomorrow. And God's not opposed to our effort, but he is opposed to our earning. And I want to free you from the gospel of guilt because the biggest problem with the gospel of guilt is the focus is still on us. It's not on Jesus and his performance. It's on us and our performance. So dive deep in the gospel of grace. Look at Romans 5, 8, and we'll finish here. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know Christ today and all this talk about impatience, I hope it's stirring things in your heart. And I hope you find a place where you can go and talk with a friend who brought you or talk with another friend or find a pastor in the back and explore what it means to have a relationship with Christ. If you are a believer today, Please believe the gospel of grace. There is a patient God waiting for your impatience today. He loves the you version right now, just like Thomas.